Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there to all you Metsian folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metsian podcast. And we're so thankful that you're joining us this week for our 67th official edition. And uh, we're, we're still, uh, we've got Cohen Fever uh, up in here. And uh, our featured guest is going to help us uh, dissect the, the entire process of that sale. Um, but before I introduce her, I'm going to go uh, first down to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, as always, Mike LaColon. What's going on, Mike? Hello, Sam. Uh, you know, ready for another day of Mets, uh, Mets banter. Can't wait. And we're, we're always jonesing to go with our Mets banter. And let's go all the way up to Milford, Connecticut. Rich, what's going on? Hey, good evening, Sam. Looking uh, like Mike, looking forward to um, another Sunday evening of talking Mets baseball, you know, very specifically Steve Cohen and uh, and uh, Alex and their ownership of the Mets, and, and looking forward to getting it started. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much. And uh, without further ado, let's bring on our featured guest of the evening. And she was front and center on many Mets Twitter feeds during this entire process. And that is journalist Laura Goldman coming uh, to us from Philadelphia this evening. What's going on? How are you? Yeah. Well, Philly's going back into lockdown, but <laughs> we, uh, Mets fans have a lot to celebrate. Uh, they got a great owner, and it looks like uh, many players are very excited uh, to come uh, play for the Mets. First time in a long time. And it's going to be interesting to see how all that offseason process goes. But uh, before we, we discuss uh, any of that, I, I just want to ask you, like, if you give our audience a bit of your background, to, uh, just get, give us a, a little bit of the, uh, the Laura Goldman story and how it led oh. you to be following so much the, the Steve Cohen sale. Okay. Um, you know, I went to Wharton and I worked on Wall Street for many years. I worked for Merrill Lynch, uh, where at one point I was number one in the Philly office. I worked for Payne Weber. I had my own firm through Bear Stearns. And I, I, I love finance. Um, but at some point, I, you know, I was in more into venture capital because I was in Israel, um, et cetera. And, um, it, and at another point, I said, you know, I'm gonna t- I didn't want to sit and watch stocks from 9.30 to 4 every day. So I decided to do other things. It was more, I loved what I was doing, but I didn't want to do it from 9 to 5. I'm not so money hungry or whatever, and I had enough money that I could live, and then I wanted to do other things. And But this Mets, uh, the sale of the Mets to somebody I knew, and I knew how he operated, I knew a lot about finances. You know, when I in Philly, at uh, Merrill Lynch, I was at one point um, number one in municipal bonds. And a lot of those municipal bonds involve stadiums, parking lots, et cetera. 
so a lot of these sale issues were front and center. I knew I knew a lot about them. And I kind of felt like I was teaching a finance, a Wharton level finance class on Twitter. And it was fun. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you that with, with your first uh, diving into the deep end of Mets Twitter, uh, not only uh, if you could discuss the outside perception of Mets fans, but Mets Twitter specifically. Ah, well, I don't want to like piss everybody off at the beginning, but I, I, I am kind of shocked. On one hand, my Twitter feed became a, a bastion of civility. I mean, I could not believe how many Mets fans had my back and how many Mets fans would beat up on the people who weren't nice. But the basic problem with social media now is a lot of people are anonymous or they're more brave uh, behind uh, a keyboard. You know, the people who were the meanest and nastiest were, um, you know, didn't, you know, had fake names. Um, or if they had their real name, you know, in real life, they would have run the other way if they ever saw you. Um, but a lot of Met fans stood up and told those people to go away, and I was really, really proud of that um, because I felt like, you know, social media, we proved that social media can be a civilized place. Yes, I had to block a lot of the jerks, but uh, Met fans, you know, didn't allow them to get away with it, et cetera. And the ones, you know, I kind of was living rent-free in their head. You know, the one guy <laughs> I blocked six months ago, and he still talks about me every day. You know, he got a fake account and joined it. I, I, I um, blocked that one, and he joined, you know, he finds another account. I'm like, what do you care what I say? You know? Yeah, well, it, it is interesting that you kind of got, uh, you, you were intersected by Cohen himself in response uh, to just a, 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 a random Mets. Twitter trolls. So, well, if you can, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, okay, first of all, I was wrong, and I'm apologizing here, etc. I, in no way, wanted to say that Alex was incompetent or in, unprofessional about the Mets Foundation. No way was what that was not what I'm saying. But that kind of was what everybody got, and I apologize for that. What I was trying to say was that, um, you know, that I want, you know, you guys got, you know, all of you got the owner of your dreams, okay? And now I want to see <laughs> that, the, you know, other people, the people in the surrounding communities also benefit, I've always been a liberal. I, I mean, you know, uh, I've always been involved in philanthropy or, you know, in working on these issues. And I didn't understand that it was your day to celebrate and I discussed something you guys just didn't care about. And I was wrong. I did talk to, you know, to Steve and I discussed it. And he told me that he was defending his wife. Uh, who was, you know, who's a great girl, and he's right. There was never any intent to, um, uh, you know, okay. And, and he apologized, and we worked it out. And he promised that he would 
be in touch with me privately if he didn't agree with something I said. Okay? I mean, I could, you know, show you those communications. I'm not going to put them on the Internet because that's just not appropriate. I don't discuss what you sent me either publicly, you know? Um, and I, and I, I try, uh, you know, unless somebody says you can, uh, you know, release my DMs or, or my texts, I don't do it. You know, or email. You know what I mean? I don't. That's not how I operate, and that's so. I was wrong, but it was not meant. I, I want you know, City Field is built on public land. That that neighborhood, because the Wilpons didn't have money, they never redeveloped it. They redeveloped it, and it has been terrible for a long time. Now the Wilpons have kept the redevelopment rights. Okay, which, you know, I, I don't have a lot of faith in them if you watch, you know. But, and I kind of hope that, uh, especially in this COVID um, time, that uh, the this, this stadium, you know, because we all have to social distance, uh, that maybe the stadium can be a, you know, a center for the community also. I have talked to local politicians like Jessica Ramos, who I know supported J-Rod's bid or A-Rod and J-Lo's bid or whatever you want to call it. But she, you know, she is advocating for her community. It was, you know, so I would like to see those kind of things. But many Mets fans got very angry at me and said, you know, they didn't care about that. Okay, you don't care about it, but I do. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually do care about it. I do want to see what happens around City Field. Um, and before I pass it on to my colleagues, uh, I'd like to ask you lastly, uh, tell us about Steve Cohen. It sounds like you and him uh, go a little way back. So if you could elaborate on who he is as both a person, as both a professional, and uh, what he means for this team buying it. I, I'm I'm excited from I, – okay, one of the reasons I got involved at the beginning was, uh, look, unfortunately, the um, the Wilpons lost their money with Madoff. That was not their – I mean, it was partially their fault for trusting him, but he was a sociopath, so it wasn't their fault. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, people get conned by sociopaths. But I felt from the time they lost their money with Madoff, they should have given up the team you know, sold the team, or got, or uh, brought in professional management like Theo Epstein. And the reason is, and not kept Jeff, because if you've lost money and you're on a tight budget, you can't afford to have your son run the team. You need to change tactics. And, I, and I, you know, people would tell me that Fred Wilpon was a – great owner and i would say no 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 a person who really cares about baseball does not let their son run the team anyway so that's that now steve steve (laughs) only knows how to win okay i you know and he only and he wants to win this is like a new phase in his life i guess in his way it's sort of a retirement i don't want to say retirement but you know a, 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 a two track uh, you know, you know, have his day job and this, and this is like unusual for him. Uh, he's intellectually, he's emotionally smarter than most people. And when I say that, you know, one of the things that held back Jeff Wilpon was all his grudges and his things like that. Uh, Cohen will never do anything like that. You know, he, he, he you know, he moves on. 
you know. You know, after, for example, mm. after he was annoyed at me, I then apologized on Twitter to both Alex and he, and he, and he thanked me. He didn't have to do that. And I'm telling you, you know, just because he understands, you know, he, he, he isn't, he is, he doesn't spend his life, um, you know, with grudges or, or things like that. That's mm. the first thing. Two, he is happy not to be the smartest person in the room. And in the case of baseball, as he said, he only played minor league, uh, little league. He he will listen to the people in the room. He's a great delegator. And, you know, I think one of the problems with owners, you know, it seems like a lot of the owners, um, uh, you know, seem to think they know it all. Okay. And, and also a lot of the fans think they know it all. <laughs> But he won't. He will listen to what the people who know what they're doing will do. That's beautiful. Uh, I I appreciate that insight, and I'm going to pass it over to Mike Lacola. Well, if you don't mind, Laura, you know, let us delve into the business of Mets baseball, if you don't mind. Uh, first First and foremost, what happened to the outstanding debt? Uh, be it Wilpons or did Mr. Cohen assume that debt? Is it paid off? I was hoping you can okay. educate us as to that. Yes. Okay. Uh, the will. Okay. The the Wilpons. The two point four billion was wired to um, uh, the Wilpons into an escrow account because it also includes money for the um, minority owners, okay, was uh, was wired in um, like 10 days ago, Friday a week ago, okay? Um, now, uh, the Will Ponds are responsible uh, for the debt. So I estimate, uh, you know, the debt, um, you know, the debt on the team, et cetera. Uh, Steve will keep the debt on the stadium. They're two different entities, if that you know, helps. Now, and the minority owners also will pay down some of that debt as part of their, you know, when the, you know, um, you know, uh, when they, when the distributions are made, um, you know, that's the first thing. Now, um, at the SNY debt, this is why I believe that um, SNY, SNY will shortly be sold. There's about 850 million of that coming due, and I don't imagine that the Wilpons have that, and they will have to sell by then. And because of the tax treatment of um, the way team uh, team television rights are taxed, it makes sense for them all to be under one umbrella. They're taxed differently if two different entities own them. Don't ask me why. It's a you know a quirk in the tax code. So I estimate that the will ponds coming out of um, the Mets will will Sol, uh, Sol Katz, Fred Wilpon, Jeff Wilpon, et cetera, et cetera, will uh, net about a billion. Uh, the follow up having to do with SNY. Do you know the, who the other minority partners are in that? And it seems to me a bit unrealistic that Cohen would continually dip into his pockets to operate the team, you know, relying on or solely on city, uh, city field revenue seems sketchy. Uh, even though attendance, I, we assume is going to spike, but it seems that SNY needs to be a part of this 
complete package. Right, I'm agreeing with you. Um, it, it seemed that there was a delay, and it might be because this is a, the next couple weeks, or aren't they very critical for free agents and trades? And it may be that once this little area, this is done, my impression is I know he wants us and why. So I, the gap may be because he needs to handle the, tra- you know, the start of the season. So that's that. Now, um, um, you know, um, I, he has told uh, that he said that he expects to lose $400 million over the next two years. Now, I don't, you know, um, that's a lot of money, but he can afford it. Will he continue forever? Um, I think for a while, because this is an asset, because of its uniqueness, that continues to go up. You know, um, I, 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 I think that he really believes that he will be able to increase attendance dramatically. You know, um, but you know the, uh, you know I don't, you know the price of a game plus food for a family is out of reach of many people nowadays. So I, I don't That's know true. what they're. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying everyone, but you take your family, uh, you take your kids to a game, uh, it's expensive, and um, it's going to be a problem. Um, but, you know, it, he's a clever guy. There may be things that he's going to, you know, do. Uh, look, TV has changed. You know, streaming, you know, a lot of people say they can't get SNY, you know, um, things like that. So he has a lot of Hollywood connections, and I suspect he's going to try to find a way to augment revenue, you know, with some different kinds of streaming. Now, will they hurt SNY? Maybe. So that's, you know, maybe what he's trying to study right now. That's fascinating. Mike, you good? Um, Uh, And also, Steve keeps about 5% of the redevelopment rights of Willits Point. So the Wilpons are in charge, and he keeps about 5%. I, I just really, really hope that they do something. Um, you know, that neighborhood is just uh, not nice. I'm good, Sam. Uh, Rich. Hey, Laura. Um, thanks Hi. for the insight. That, that's fascinating stuff. You know, my question is a bit more about the process. So, you know, as fans, it seemed to us, and I'm asking you to confirm or deny, it it seemed to us that selling the team to Steve Cohen was a fait accompli and that my my analogy would be, you know, you have a closed window and Alex Rodriguez jumping up and down, you see his head, hey, I'm here too, waving, then he goes down, then he comes up, I'm over here too. You know, and he was never really a serious contender to buy the Mets, that it was, it was going to go to Cohen. That's the way it was going to be, you know, and that it just did not seem like, like there was any real competition from the J-Lo or A-Rod or, or, or A-Lo, whatever you want to call it group. Now, what I'm asking you is. <laughs> A-Lo, I love that. That's a new one. A-Lo <laughs> or right. I, I think I actually said that once and I kind of liked it. So uh, thank you. Um, but my question to you is, an ordinary fan, right, is my perception accurate that this was kind of a fait accompli, or did the buying group under Alex Rodriguez in any way, shape, or form that I'm not aware of 
give Steve Cohen a run for his money for control of the team? Okay. First of all, you forgot the, the actual person who gave uh, Steve Cohen a run for his money, Josh Harris. Right, right. Uh, right. In You're the beginning. Huh? I, or any buying group, but please continue. No, okay. Josh Harris seriously wanted the team. Okay, he was not going to be crazy, but he wanted the team. And he entered the bidding thinking that, um, and, you know, he had some legitimate thinking, which didn't work out, that there would be pressure not to sell to Cohen because of some of his past um, history. Okay, and... Uh, so that was, and he, so he thought he could get it at a reasonable price. You know, he was never the bargain hunter that everybody said. He had contacted a lot of banks about getting extra partners. It's kind, you know, it's kind of what he did in Philly, et cetera. So that was one. Now, I talked to, I didn't talk to A Rod and J Lo that often, but I talked to the um, other vocal minority partners, you know, the business side of them, because they're the ones I know. I mean, I'm not in A-Rod's circle or J-Lo's circle. You know, I know business people. And they thought they could pull it off because they thought that de Blasio was in their corner. But I told them, no, 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 de Blasio will cave. (laughs) That's what I told him. <laughs> I said, you know, he, he, I said he walks and talks like a liberal and a progressive, but not necessarily. So, um, but that, they, okay, they were, uh, they had, you know, they had Al Sharpton, blah, 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 you know, except, you know, Jessica Ramos, who's the state senator from that area, but, you know, um, it was not going to go anywhere. It was too much debt. Now, I am actually surprised at how poorly J.P. Morgan did in managing their deal. Now, it might have been because, uh, you know, A-Rod just was out of control. It, you know, and it might have been because J.Lo was out of control. You know, they were too prima donna and people were afraid to join the deal. But, and, and they insisted on too much control. But J.P. Morgan should have been able to put away this deal, and they wanted to put away this deal because it would have been a big coup for them. Allen and company and companies like that have done sports deals forever. This would have been a first for J.P. Morgan and a big deal. Okay? But I think that they couldn't manage uh, A-Rod and J-Lo. Fair enough. Thank you. Uh, Laura, thank you. Uh, my last question is if you could comment on Kim Ng becoming the first uh, woman general manager uh, this uh, with the Marlins. I'm just like in heaven. I, I, and, you know, people ask me why I was still on Twitter, you know, talking. was I took that as a sign to stay for a little longer. <laughs> and listen, <laughs> when I – okay, I'm a lot older than you guys, okay. When I decided to be a stockbroker, Okay, you know, go to Wharton. Okay, when I went to Wharton, there was they they had to convert one of the men's bathrooms into a girls' bathroom because the the classes ahead of me there weren't any women there. Okay, so the only way 
that little girls can now dream about becoming a general manager of a baseball team if now they've seen one. When I said that this is what I wanted to do, um, I, you know, trading places, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I just, you know, that I love that action, you know. I said this is sounds fun. Somebody took me to the floor, and that's, you know, I, and I said I'm going to do this, and my parents were like, what? Where did we raise you? My mother wanted me to be a general hygienist. So this is a big thing, and I actually had hoped that maybe Cohen would pick her. I I, I really hoped that you know uh, uh, you know due to his issues, you know, so some women had sued him, which he has five daughters. So you know, I, I, some of this stuff I'm wondering where it's coming from. I kind of hoped, you know, uh, that. This will be the new normal. I hope so, too. Uh, there's no reason it shouldn't I, be. I, and, and, Laura, yeah, go ahead. No, I think, yeah, I think that there are things that women are better at than men. And, and also there are plenty of things that men are better at a woman. But I think of many, many players as babies and prima donnas. And women are the best at handling those kind of people. I, when I was a um, broker, um, they used to call me the big game hunter because um, I could, uh, you know, keep the very rich men happy because, you know, and you know because I babied them. <laughs> you know, you know they they want a lot of things. That's how you know, et cetera. So I actually think you're going to see that she will understand how to build morale and you know which is the most crucial and, and, um, element in building a team that, in a different way than men do. It's a great point. Uh, Laura Goldman, we appreciate you joining us this evening. And uh, before I let you go, uh, please give what we like to call a shameless plug. Tell everybody out there where they can find you. Oh, okay. Um, my Twitter handle is uh, Laura S. Uh, uh, Goldman, L-A-U-R-A-S, Goldman, G-O-L-D-M-A-N. I'm also on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook. And, uh, you know, and if you put in Philadelphia, you'll find me. Excellent. And we will do so. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for joining us this evening. Okay. Thanks. And if you, ever, if you have, have questions or anything at another time, just ask. You know, or send an email. Oh, for sure. See you later. No, you're welcome back anytime. Bye. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. It's amazing. Um, I, I, I want to, before we delve into the off season, and first of all, thank, thanks again to uh, Laura Goldman for joining us this evening. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. There's so much to kind of unpack there. And, Mike, I'm going to send it over to you for your, your you know, you can open the first box. Well, a wealth of information, you know. Uh, she uncovered a lot of details that I think Met fans are very much interested in. Uh, she gave us information as to the fine print about the deal with regards to the real estate across the street and who has priority as to developing that. Uh, you know, we understand where all the debt is and where it's going and who's responsible for that. And we have insight to the SNY deal. What more could we ask for, really? Uh, these are the things that most of, uh, you know, people in the media, print, otherwise, radio, what have you, aren't 
talking about. There you go. Metsian Podcast exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, Rich, uh, go ahead. Uh, I pass another box over. Yeah, it, no, it was very interesting to hear that the debt, you know, is still um, primarily on the shoulders of the Will Ponds, if I heard it correctly. And, um, and you know, there's, there are a lot of things that need to come together. But, but I, I really appreciated her answer to my question, which I was curious about. You know, because I wonder, I remember back in July writing something for Mesmerize about um, about the process, you know, and all the bids were due on a certain day. And, um, you know, you had the folks who owned the Flyers, um, or 76ers, I think, um, you know, wanting, that, that's Harris. And then you had the vitamin water guy, um, whose name escapes me right now, who was also a contender. Um, and then you had the J-Rod group and Steve Cohen. And, and my question was, and she answered it, how much of a, of a fight was this or was it a fait accompli? And, and I think um, I got my answer. You know, I think it really came down to, you know, while Harris wanted it, um, it, it doesn't seem like it really went anywhere and that it really was Steve Cohen's to lose, which is what we heard all, all along. And, and she basically confirmed that, but I was curious, I, mean, I was curious, you know, um, was there any real chance that, that um, the J-Rod thing would happen? And the de Blasio thing was interesting because that was the last hurdle. I think that was, what, two weeks ago today, was it, um, on, on, the, on a Friday, or two weeks ago Friday, where it was, or maybe it was last Friday, that, it was last Friday, I'm sorry, that, um, that it was okay, well, every, you know, all the boxes are checked, and, and it's just up to de Blasio, and he kind of hemmed and hawed for a couple hours there about this, that, and this, and that, and then next thing you know, it was a done deal, so... It was interesting to hear just how close to reality all the, you know, the myriad of stuff we were hearing was. And what I took from it was it wasn't really a bidding war. Like it wasn't really a contest when, when you come right down to it. And the de Blasio thing was true. The de Blasio thing was mm-hmm. he, he was thought that he could be an ally to, to J-Rod and, and he was for a brief time, but kind of half-heartedly. So it was interesting. I think we got to run with the ALO from now on, though. I think I think we really do. Um, it, it's Mike. I'm going to go first to you with like what you know. So what's what's this next step? You know, I actually I, I interestingly enough, you know, I think a, a name that obviously keeps coming up if we're talking about specific moves the Mets can make is Trevor Bauer. Now, uh, some people do not like his personality. Some people love it. I find it interesting that he is, uh, you know, actually engaging with the way that Steve Cohen has engaged with the fans. He's actually talking about it on social media, talking about it on on YouTube. Um, Mike, I'm going to go to you first with that. You know, I I feel weirdly enough that's unprecedented. I've never seen a player from a, a, from a solo brand level the way he is doing it uh, kind of understand his way of reaching out to the market and to the fan from a personal perspective, sans a baseball team right now. Interesting to say the least. Uh, you have to keep it in context of the modern day. You know, individuals have platforms to pro- self-promote. And uh, it, it's an interesting venue when when you think about the traditional ways and the old fashioned ways of having to go about this. So, yeah, 
he's out there branding himself, uh, you know, but coming to New York is unlike any other place. Uh, and that can either work for you or, or blow up in your face. We've seen it before. Uh, to come in here and simply work hard uh, and let the rest take care of itself. Uh, as far as prioritizing him for the Mets and the rotation versus other needs, interesting. It is a need. We need starting pitching. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but how much more do we prioritize that over catcher, center field, and things of that nature, or the bullpen for that matter? So, you know, I'm at a loss to say where the money should go, and I'm also not going to entertain this wanton attitude that we need to, you know, fill all the spots with money. So um, if anything else, I'm just content to wait this out and see how it develops. So, uh, Rich, you know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll lay it, and I'm not so sure exactly what I think the answer is yet, but specifically with uh, Trevor Bauer, you could argue that as much uh, of, of a certain positional needs um, – that the Mets have had for years, uh, their offense has all of a sudden gotten better than their pitching when pitching was the, the name of the game for so long with, you know, John Mayberry Jr. and Eric Campbell in the middle of the lineup infamously. So would you say that pitching is the priority right now over that? Uh, and, and specifically, what is your opinion of going after Trevor Bauer? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Pitching is, is definitely the priority. And, and that's why the Marcus Stroman uh, accepting of the qualifying offer, I, I think, was huge um, for a lot of reasons. And number one is pitching. So and it, it will be interesting to see what happens going forward, because if the Mets fill in above Stroman, uh, maybe they do sign a Bauer, then Stroman becomes your number three, perhaps even number four. If they are unsuccessful in getting Bauer or someone of, you know, similar ilk, then Stroman is your number two and you slot in and then, you know, you slot in your David Peterson and then you have to figure out the rest, you know, Syndergaard when he comes back in the middle of the season, maybe Seth Lugo, maybe not um, stuff like that. So, but, but having Stroman back, it really is a shot in the arm because the pitching was horrible. This team, like you just said, this team is now about offense. They could score with the best of them. They just could not pitch last year. And to see a New York Mets team very close to the bottom of baseball in starting ERA, I think they were like 25th or 26th um, in starters ERA, is just something we haven't seen in, you know, since the 80s probably, since the early 80s or the late 70s. And this team has always been about pitching, and, and it's just not there. So bringing Stroman back is very important. But now let's talk about Bauer. Um what I found most interesting about power, you know, yeah, Steve Cohen and all that, but how about Sandy Alderson who, you know, under the Wilpon regime measured his words very, very carefully and often said nothing and often would, you know, would talk a lot and say nothing. But now what does he do last week? He comes out and he says, you know, baseball is the entertainment business. And I think, you know, a guy like that would be great in New York. Could you believe he actually said that? I mean, this is the same guy, right, who two years ago was running this team and would say nothing all the time. 
just, you know, find a way to dance around anything like Fred Astaire. And he just came right out and said it, you know, that, that, Hey, you'd be great in New York. This is the entertainment business. This is the entertainment capital of the world. Sure. It was like, Whoa, um, we really have a new day here. And, you know, whether or not they sign Bauer, I, I don't see how, if you have resources, I don't see how he's not your number one priority. You know, the pitching is, is bad. Okay, Stroman, great. You need more. If he's out there and you can have the last three Cy Young Awards in your rotation, why in the world would you not do it? I mean, if he's willing to come here and, and Cohen's willing to spend the money, uh, sure. How is he not your priority? Somebody would have to tell me why he's not the number one priority. And the name being thrown out there is Charlie Morton. And, you know, Mike, I find it funny. These are the type of off-season rumors you're going to hear. According to SNY TV, the Mets have been in contact with Charlie Morton's agent. Yes, uh, they probably are because he's probably the agent of a bunch of other players. But obviously there's a reason why Charlie Morton's name gets uh, specifically sent out there. But it's just a funny thing to me because these guys are constantly in contact because they have things to talk about. But, Mike, what do you think – of that name, uh, you know, throwing it out there, of course. He's from Flemington, New Jersey, went to high school in Connecticut. Go ahead, Mike. That's a guy who intrigues me. Uh, I welcome him. Bring him on, you know. I have nothing but good things to say about him. So I'm very much interested. And, Rich, you know, when talking about uh, uh, Charlie Morton, you know, I think at this point, obviously, they were saying that, you know, you don't want to be drunken sailors. uh, But I think it would be pretty symbolic if they got Charlie Morton and Trevor Bauer the season after they get Rick Porcello and Michael Walker. What a contrast, right? Um, Morton, you know, yeah, he was born in Jersey, but I've got to say it. I mean, he's a Connecticut guy. He went to high school here. He played his high school ball here. Um, and they're actually interested in another Connecticut guy in Springer, but, but we'll get off the, uh, the geography here. Um, but, but about Morton, you know, I was reading up on him a little bit, and there are some people who are concerned. Not Well, he's 36, right? And, and he is showing signs of that. His velocity was down this year. Um, he didn't have a terribly good year. Um, you know, not, not, he didn't have a, what you would call a really, really good season. He was good in the postseason, which he typically is. So you have to wonder, you know, are you buying, you know, are you paying top dollar for a guy whose best days are behind him? That's a fair argument. You know, that's a very fair argument. You bring him in on a shorter deal, you know, a year maybe with a club option for a second year and Bauer. And now you've got something because now you've got Bauer, DeGrom, Stroman, and Morton, Peterson, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sign me up. I'll take that one right there. That enables Lugo to go back to the bullpen, which is, you know, although he had some really good starts, but, but he's, he's a lockdown reliever. If you're able to get both, that's exactly what I was just talking about. You fill in the top of the rotation with Bauer, you plug in below him, below Stroman with Morton, and you've got Peterson uh, that, you know, that kind of quote unquote embarrassing starting pitching ERA guarantee that's not happening again in 2021. That is correct. You know, uh, before we get to offense, Mike, I'm going to go back over to you. Is there any other names that you are intrigued by or, or and, or if you'd also like to talk about Marcus Stroman, because I, I don't think I, I, I forget whether or not the uh, Tuesday podcast uh, had Stroman talk, but 
take it away, Mike. No, I, I really have nothing more to add. You know, we know who the center field candidate is. We know who the candidates for catcher are. And we know who the candidates for starting pitcher are. P- pitcher are. So uh, there's not much more to add. Uh, I'm I'm just I'm still in a state of giddiness. I'm just still happy over the ownership transference, and you know I'm looking forward to a productive off season. Whether they get one, two, three guys, you know that remains to be seen. But uh, the future is something that I'm just overly thrilled about, and you know it doesn't have to be overnight. Uh, I understand better days are ahead, so I'm more than willing to just. Bide my time, let them get their house in order, let them get proper people in their positions, uh, vet this process out effectively, and and go about their business with conviction, you know. Uh, that's what I'm more interested in right now more than anything else. Uh, but we know who the players are. Uh, the question is, are they going to go that extra mile and, 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 you know, outdo the field and secure these players? We'll see. Uh, but I, I I'm I'm not going to you know beset them with all these great expectations, and you know the month of November hasn't even passed yet. You know what I mean? I'm willing to undergo a, a fine, a, a fine, effective off season, however which way that transpires. Yeah, I'm sure morale is going to you know add a few wins alone um but you know you obviously still need to plug in these holes uh, where you find them uh like you said you know we know all those names uh but i'd like to zone in on some names people were randomly throwing out on on the uh the social media sphere uh and that was two yankees mashahiro tanaka and gary sanchez um and i think you know rich I think that even at this point, even with Cohen, I still see any uh, aging Yankee coming to the Mets as a complete disaster waiting to happen. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, you can't shake it off in one off season. You can't shake it off in only like 10 days. So uh, what say you? Yeah, I'm not interested in Mashiro Tanaka. I mean, um, you know, he, he definitely, he's a big money kind of pitcher, big game kind of pitcher. He certainly is talented. You know, he's certainly been good for the Yankees and all that stuff, but not interested. You know, the, the one thing we have to remember about Mashiro Tanaka is he does have an arm issue. I, I forget exactly what it is, but he is pitching with, I think it might be a, a, a UCL tear or something like that. And he's pitched with it for years and okay, fine. You know, and, and I, um, and he's not a, a really young guy anymore. So I would worry about throwing a bunch of money at him and thinking, okay, no, we've locked down our number two or number three starter, whatever you want to call him. And, you know, you're you're playing a bit of Russian roulette with him with a a number of factors like age and and pitching with with, with an injury. So, yeah, it would be for the Mets to sign him away from the Yankees. It's a risk, number one. And number two, if – if the bad thing should happen, you know, and he ends up not being able to perform, you, you just got enormous egg on your face. I think the Mets are over that now. I think the Mets have to entirely get past the idea of signing these guys who are, um, you know, who are, oh, can we make a pack never to use this term again, you know, low risk, high reward signings or high risk, uh, 
high reward signs, whatever you want to call them. I, I'd rather get past that and, and spend the money judiciously on one or two guys who are, you know, surer bets than Masahiro Tanaka. I would concur. Uh, and I, I have a feeling, Mike, you are on the same page. Yeah. Um, I agree with you guys. I have no interest. Uh, he's a good pitcher was effective, but you know, I'm more interested in youth at this point. Uh, that would be an inconsequential acquisition as far as I'm concerned. Uh, well, I, I would agree with you guys. Um, and uh, before we move on to our, our historical section, uh, you know, we're, we're coming to uh, about 45 minutes in uh, to a Metsian podcast. We appreciate all the listeners out there. And uh, I'll go to you first, Mike, uh, before we get to the historical part, if there's anything else you wanted to touch on. Uh, you know what? This one comes out of left field. Uh, the minor league system, you know, minor league teams are trying to pare down their systems to four teams. And the Mets announced that their system would be pared down to Syracuse, Binghamton, Brooklyn, and St. Lucie. Uh, the question is, although more than most likely, Brooklyn is going to become a long season a regular long season team, uh, and they will be the high A affiliate, and St. Lucie will turn into a low A affiliate. Uh, but there's still question as to whether Brooklyn will be the double A affiliate, making Binghamton the high A affiliate. But like I say, more than most likely, Brooklyn is going to be the high A affiliate. And as a Brooklyn Cyclone fan, uh, A, I'm thrilled that we're going to be a full season team. Uh, we were short season. The season here in Brooklyn didn't start till uh, the end of June, usually June 23rd, give or take a day, you know. Uh, but now we're going to be playing a regular season, and uh, I'm thrilled. I'm happy about that. I'm glad uh, that the Brooklyn Cyclones made this cut, you know, uh, in the way that Major League Baseball is reshaping minor league baseball and the independent leagues for that matter. I never had a doubt that Brooklyn would survive. They're one of the most successful teams in all of minor league baseball, uh, attendance-wise and otherwise. Uh, but, you know, the question remained in what capacity and what league moving forward. So now we have a little bit of clarity. And, again, as a Brooklyn Cyclone fan, I am very happy about that. I look forward to, uh, you know, April through September uh, here in Brooklyn. Uh, that's it little news from the minor leagues. Yeah. That's really exciting. Rich, if you want to touch on any of that information. No, that, that is exciting for Brooklyn and that is good. And, and I have a topic to throw out. Um, uh, just wanted to throw, throw this one out. I, I wrote a piece for Metsmerize and, um, and I wanted to get you guys to react to it. If you watched either a baseball night in New York or Mets hot stove this week, they, on both shows, they asked the same question to the panel. If you could have JT Real Muto or George Springer. Now, of course, the Mets could potentially have both. You know, who knows? We're in a, we're in a whole new world. But to, just for fun, if you had to have one or the other, which one would you pick? And, and I find, you know, I've been watching the hundreds upon hundreds of comments on the article and, and it's a very interesting question. I would say it's about 50-50 what people are saying and their reasons. But I just want to throw it to you guys. You know, Mike, maybe if you 
Think about mm-hmm. the New York Mets. Think about what they need and, you know, and, and alternatives here and there and every, everywhere else. If you absolutely could only have one, which one would you take and why? And, Sam, same question after Mike. Uh, Rich, I would go with Riomuto. I would go for the catcher, uh, position of catcher, only because of the symbiotic relationship that they have with their pitchers. You know me, I want a supreme receiver, a defensive specialist, uh, and he works well with pitchers. Uh, he's an accomplished catcher, uh, and that's a rarity. Uh, and I'd be willing, even though he's turning 30 years old, you know, or around in that corner, I'd still be willing to give him, if he's agreeable, which he's most likely not, you know, a three- or four-year deal. We'll see how that, turn, you know, turns out. But, uh, you know, I could find somebody. I could, bide my t- I could bide my time with the defensive specialist in center field and, and hopefully get the offense, the requisite offense for my corner positions and my corner outfielders. You know, but catcher is that unique position where everybody's in front of him. He's the only guy on the field who has that, that view of baseball. So it's a unique position, and when you can fill that, when something becomes available, I think you pounce on it. Uh, yeah, I'd be leery uh, to give him an extended contract. Five is ridiculous, six is outrageous, and seven is out of the question, obviously. I'd be agreeable to three, four, you know, an option his way or the club's way, whichever way that works out. But because the catcher, uh, the position of catcher uh, entails the pitching staff, not just the staff as a whole, but individually with the, with the starting rotation and, and how, how – they 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 work together with the with the bullpen, and everything that they have to know about all the individual parts in that system, you know that responsibility is not put on the shoulders of center fielders per se, or shortstops or second basemen for that matter. That responsibility is put on the catcher, and that's why I would lean in that direction. Excellent, uh, Sam. What do you think? I think that's a great answer. I, I think I'd want to also explore if you had to pick one, uh, what, you know, the how far up a certain player is. What what's the the depth in terms of whether it's center field versus catcher in the Mets system, and whether you can fill that need uh, at, at any particular time over the next couple of years. Um, and, and you know, we haven't heard of anything. Uh, but maybe they drafted somebody who's supposed to be, I, I forget, uh, but maybe he, they drafted somebody who was out of college and could be moving quickly uh, out in the outfield. So I think if I were to answer that, I'd want to see that. So I, I know it's kind of a cop-out uh, of an answer, uh, but that's, that's my final answer, Rich. It's a fair one. You know, I think when you answer a question like that, you have to think about alternatives. Like, are you better off? All right, so real Muto or what? Um or, you know, Springer or what, you know, and, and is that internal? Do you get, you know, people internally? Uh, are there other alternatives trade-wise or free agent-wise? You know, obviously you can't make the decision in a vacuum. Um, the people who are going for Real Muto say what Mike said. You know, a catcher is invaluable because of his relationship with the pitcher. You get, you know, you get a double hit. You know, you get a, a, a good receiver. Although his defensive run save were zero last year, which I found surprising. Uh, still better than Ramos, by the way, who is negative. But um, you get a better receiver than the Mets have had who could work with the pitchers, knows the division, all that stuff. So you get that plus his offense, which was very good. You know, he had 11 home runs. I think he hit about 270. Um, so, you know, much better than we've seen out of Ramos. So, so you get that. 
the people who are saying Springer are saying, and I kind of think I'm 50-50. I kind of think there's something to this, though, because if you say Springer, you know, you've got a center fielder, although he did play some left and right with Houston, but mostly he is a center fielder. Um, you get a center fielder who can lead off, you know, great defense. He had a six defensive run save in center field, whereas Nimmo was minus five. So imagine that difference. Um, so you get that in center field. And then because the Mets are such an offensive team per our previous discussion just a minute ago, maybe you could go with a different catcher and just get a defense only catcher, you know, somebody like that, who's going to be primarily defense, not so much on the offensive side. And you don't have to worry about giving real Muto five years because he does have a hip issue that kept him out um, for some time this season. And you have to wonder as he gets into his thirties, is that hip flexor going to be a chronic issue? So maybe you spare yourself that and you get a defense only catcher or deep defense primary catcher and you lock up center field and you get the better defense. It's an interesting debate. You can go either way. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and, you know, I guess before we, we – I want to touch back on Brooklyn, Mike, uh, real quick, but uh, obviously the general manager needs to be sorted out uh, before every all of this stuff that we're talking about. And I, I forget exactly one name that was speculated as having been the, the person that Alderson was interviewing in Florida a few days ago. Um, but – yeah, Mike, Mike, I, I do again want to touch back on Brooklyn, but before I do, let's talk general manager. Um, I'm guessing, considering that we're talking Sunday night, tomorrow's Monday, we're going to start hearing a slew of rumors coming out over the next few days. Without a doubt. Uh, unfortunately, the gentleman's name, the general manager from the, from the Marlins, his name escapes me at the moment. Rich, help me out on that. The general manager of the Marlins? Um yeah. Uh, Billy Owens, I know, was the GM of Oakland, but I, I can't think of the GM of the Marlins. Um, the outgoing one. Oh, anyway. No, I'll look uh, up the name. I know you're talking about it. it was, yeah. yeah. I, I read it this afternoon. I, it's at the tip of my tongue. I can't get it. But the point is, Sam, I don't want the Mets or Sandy Alderson going out of order, which it seems to me they will. I want them hiring a president first and then a general manager. I want the president hiring the general manager. That's the chain of command. That's the hierarchy. That's the way it should go. But I guess they're pressed for time. So they might do things on the fly or they might, you know, go about this rather methodically. We don't know. That remains to be seen. But as Sandy Alderson said in the presser, I already have, you know, a few people on board that can get the ball rolling for us. Uh, so I, you know, I guess he's confident in both both respects. Yeah, Rich, if you want to touch on GM real quick or GM and president real quick, I'm surprised. Mike makes a good point. Um, you know, I, I'm surprised, but I but then again, maybe I shouldn't be because, you know, the hot stove season isn't going to say, okay, everybody, hold on, Mets have to get a GM. You know, uh, things are happening. Um, there haven't been a lot not a lot of movement yet, but the free agency season is officially upon us. It started last Sunday. I think it was. Um, so, you know, it's out there. Uh, the GM meetings were canceled, but there will be winter meetings, of course, virtually. And, and these conversations are going to happen and the Mets have to be prepared you know, because if, if rail Muto goes somewhere and, and Springer goes somewhere and Bauer goes somewhere, 
they have to be prepared to start making baseball decisions now. And Sandy made it pretty clear that he doesn't want to be at the head of the table, to use his term. So, yes, they have to get a GM. They have to get one soon and, and entrust this person with, you know, actually doing the legwork to build the roster. Um, so I'm a bit surprised, you know, that, that they're kind of talking about this stuff before the GM. But if you look at reality and where we are in the calendar, it has to be done. You know, they, they, they can't just sit around and wait because if Rio Muto signs this week, you know, somewhere and, and then Springer does the same, you know, nobody's going to feel sorry for the Mets because they didn't have a GM in place and they, they've got to be active. And the, the name uh, I was trying know, to search my brain for was Michael Hill. Heck, right? I think he's one of the candidates under consideration. He is. Yes, he is. Thank and you. Wasn't there, somebody, wasn't there somebody with last name like Heck as well? I know they spoke to Hill because that was the one that Sandy was being coy about, but he already spoke to him. Um, but I, I just read today that he's, Sandy's being very coy about I guess he is talking to people, but no one knows who he's talking to. Well, hey, you know, I, I think, uh, like I say, he's kind of unsuspecting. You know, he comes, he looks at first like he's going to have like this dry, this 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 bland personality, but then he has this dry humor that just elevates him to kind of, I don't know, general manager, baseball executive, rock star status. In my book, um, <laughs> I I think that Sandy certainly has done enough of the job over the years to get the ball rolling. So there is that to consider. Um, and uh, before we move on to the history part, I did want to one more time touch on this with you, Mike, you know, that's pretty spectacular. And it, it, it you know, because we're going through the pandemic, it's kind of hard to understand right now, but if they're able to get minor league baseball off the ground in April of 2021, that's going to be the first time, that a professional baseball game has been played in Brooklyn in April since 1957. And we're still waiting to raise the championship flag that we won in 2019. There hasn't been a game since. And on top of that, as you say, if and when they resume play, because of the restructuring of the leagues and teams, and now that the – Brooklyn Cyclones stand to be a high A team. Virtually the entire roster that won the championship in 2019 will return intact, almost intact, which is unprecedented for the former New York Penn League and that level of minor league baseball because they will all have graduated and now they will be at the the level of play where they should be. It's a very interesting development. Uh, and I look forward to going to a Brooklyn game with a little bit of a Coney Island chill in the air. Um, it, it, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a lot of fun. So without further ado, um, it, I, I will, in the segue to our historical uh, talk, uh, segue with the only player that we have to talk about with uh, uniform number 67, and that is Steph Lugo, the only player to wear number 67 in Mets history. And Rich, I'm going to start with you. What's so funny about it to me is that it's the kind of number you just give a player of his stature at the time that you didn't think was going to 
elevate to the level that he did, and it kind of just stuck. And now Seth Lugo is a crucial part of this Mets roster. Yeah, with a number of 67, he could be the left guard or he could be a pitcher, right? Um, so, yeah. But, um, but you know, it's interesting that that same episode of uh, Baseball Night in New York on Friday, which was fantastic, by the way, um, it had GKR. Uh, they were, it was on for an hour, all GKR. And it was funny. It was insightful. So if anybody has a chance to watch, I recommend it. But anyway, um, Gary Cohen talked about Lugo. And Gary is an enormous believer that Lugo should go back to the bullpen. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, by enhancing the starting pitching, you can put Lugo back where he belongs, where he's more effective. And, and you know, Lugo, Lugo's an interesting case. There's a lot going on there. You know, you remember, he's got a partially torn UCL. And every time this guy's on the mound, you know, being the, the Met fan who looks up thinking a safe's going to fall on my head all the time, um, you know, I'm always worried that that's going to be Lugo's last time. He's going to blow that thing. He's going to need Tommy John surgery. But it's been years. I think this will be his, uh, I think, 17. It'll be his fifth season pitching with it this year. So, anyway, so you've got that. You've got the fact that he wants to start. You've got the fact that he is a lights-out reliever, uh, whether it's an eighth-inning guy or whether it's, you know, even in, in some spot closing he's done. And although his last couple of starts were not good in 2020, he was a pretty darn good starter for the first several starts. So what do you do with this guy? I mean, I, we all like Seth Lugo. I certainly do. It's a, it's a good problem to have where you have a guy like this. You can do multiple things with him. The question is, given his UCL situation, given his, you know, whatever is going on and what the team needs, what do you do with the guy? Do you say, look, we need we need five starters and one of them is not Lugo, or we need four more starters because we have Lugo? I, I don't know. Um, you can make an argument either way, and uh, gun to my head, I'd put him back in the bullpen. I, I think he was just too valuable in the bullpen um, and better, and um, and so that's what I would do. But Seth Lugo, even though he's the only guy with 67, there's a lot to talk about with this guy. There really is. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, you know, it's basically the age-old question at this point, Mike. What do you do with Seth Lugo? Well, I'm like Rich. Uh, my preference is to have him pitching out of the bullpen, but that's my preference. Uh, he has his own preference. He wants to start. Uh, the onus is going to be on the general manager to decide this one way or another. Is he going to be coming out of the bullpen or is he going to be a starter? He'll decide that. Or she'll decide that, you know, not Lugo, at least I don't think. Uh, and in fairness to him, they didn't give him much of a, of a chance to stretch himself out coming out of the bullpen and, and into the starting rotation. You know, that's something that's in spring training and not necessarily the way the Mets went about it, in fairness to him. But like Rich says, towards the end, he started having good starts. He was coming out on the other end of that process. And, you know, uh, the results were, were, were proving themselves out. But he's a good pitcher. He's a damn good pitcher. Uh, I prefer him in the bullpen. Uh, he wants to start. We're going to see where this goes. And it's up to the general manager to hash this out and, and conclude this one way or another. And then it's going to be up to the manager just to manage. I don't think he has a say. 
it seems one way or another, he's a really smart pitcher. He really, you know, studies the art of pitching, which for a while with some of these guys, it just doesn't seem to be there uh, precisely. And he seems to kind of be one of those old school intellectuals about it, uh, which is, is fantastic. And speaking of an old school intellectual, when it comes to the art of pitching, we go back to 1967, the 1967 New York Mets, the first year that Tom Seaver was on the team. What's fascinating to me, um, what, what, I'll start with you, Mike. What's fascinating to me about this team is that they actually lost more games than the team before uh, who lost 95. And that team, the 1966 New York Mets, were up until that point, come around, up until that point. Uh, uh, they, they were the first New York Mets team not to lose 100 games and here we are with some, some examples of what is to come, but still you have 101 losses. Right. To the casual observer, you know, oh, there they go again, 100 losses, same old Mets. Nothing's going to change. But, you know, if you were in the know, you knew that drafting was starting to have its effect on the organization. It takes time when you're an expansion club to get that minor league system going, you know, and, and finally their drafting is starting to have its effect. And in 1967, they have upwards of, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 bodies that will ultimately win a world championship just two years later. Uh, you mentioned Tom Seaver, uh, but Jerry Kuzman also touched the major leagues this season. He only pitched in nine games, but positive that, the minor league system has to get churning. You know, first you need to get those gears in motion, and then ultimately by this year, we're starting to see the fruits of that. And uh, we all know Gil Hodges would take over the team the following season and really transform the organization. But in 67, uh, you might say that despite 101 losses, they were doing everything right. It would appear to be that way. I mean, you're looking through there, and, and Rich, I'm just looking at the roster, uh, some random things that point out to, you know, to me. Uh, uh, Amos Otis was on this team, who became an all-star with the Kansas City Royals in the 1970s, um, and he did get a ring briefly, uh, only getting 102 plate appearances for the 1969 New York Mets. No spoiler alert for a 69th episode. But uh, it, it, this is a type of player like the one that got away that's just like throughout Mets history. Um, outside of uh, Amos Otis, one, one of the random things here is that there was an infielder, age 31, Bob Johnson, who uh, played 90 games, 246 plate appearances, and batted 348 off the bench. Yeah, you know, that that is interesting. And, and when you look at this 67 roster, right, uh, as I'm looking at it myself, Throw a few names out that were on the 69 team. It's not a couple. It's a lot. Grody, Cranepool, Harrelson, Ed Charles, Cleon Jones, Ron Swoboda. You know, the list goes on. And um, then if you look, you know, Ken Boswell was on that team. And then obviously on, on the mound, you know, like you said, Tom Seaver, um, Rookie of the Year that year. Don Cardwell was on the 69 team, as was, um, you know, Ron Taylor. So, uh, Tug McGraw was on the 69 team, Jerry Kuzman, as, as Mike said. So I've just named, I've, there are probably 12 names here 
that's half the roster of the 69 team was on the 67 team that lost 101 games. And what it tells you is, you know, having patience. So they had some patience. They brought the right manager in and Gil Hodges. They let these guys develop, you know, Kuzman nine games. And they let Seaver continue to develop, you know, Harrelson and Grody and, and all these guys. And, and they really had, obviously they had the foundation of a winner and it would have been easy. And I wonder guys in today's culture, team that lost 101 games, and actually, as you said, Stan, had taken a step back from the previous year. Would there have been in, in this, you know, satisfy me now culture that we all live in, more, would that team have stayed together? Or would leadership have, have started to, you know, tinker with it to try and, you know, put some Band-Aids on things to, to put a winner on the field? I wonder if, if times were different if this team would have been handled the same way, you know, given a chance to, to mature and then just two short years later win the world series or in this day and age might it have been handled differently. No one will ever know, but it's an interesting question. Yeah, it's an incredible hypothetical. And, and Mike, I'm, I'm certainly not done talking about the 1967 New York Mets. It's a fascinating year to look at. Um, randomly seeing that Sandy Al- Alomar at age 23 uh, played uh, 22 plate appearances with zero the zero batting average, unfortunately, but it's some random little flashes of history. Uh, you know, Ken Boswell was a 21 year old this year. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a fascinating season. Uh, the Alomars, you know, one of the greatest families in baseball history, a lot of, a lot of talent came out of the, that gene pool. Uh, but I have to give a shout out to Tommy Davis. His one and only year with the Mets, a 28-year-old, and he posted quite the season. 16 home runs, 73 runs batted in, and a 302 batting average. Why Tommy Davis? Because he was born and raised in Brooklyn. He's a local kid. All hail Tommy Davis. Went to boys' high school here in Brooklyn. Beautiful. Um, Rich, anything else that stands out to you here? Uh, no, I, I think it's just, it, it's fascinating to look at the roster and see that it, it was so similar to the 69 team. Um, that, that's, what stands out to me. And, um, and of course my hypothetical on how things would have been handled if it were, uh, you know, in our, what have you done for me five seconds ago culture that we live in. You, you know, Rich, to that, to that end, you know, at the time Bing Devine was in the organization, uh, he held sway. Uh, after that, you know, uh, Whitey Herzog spent some time in the organization. He held sway. And then, of course, Gil Hodges came in 68. Uh, so, you know, your hypothetical with other people in charge in a different time, in a different place, would things have transpired differently? Uh, great question. But I think they were, you know, doing things smartly. Uh, the, the poison <laughs> that we call and Donald Grant hadn't, you know, seeped throughout the system yet. He was still in the background because of those people I mentioned, Bing Devine and others. True. Yeah. And um, just why, people, in, I'm sorry, Sam, but people sorry, forget that Whitey no, Herzog, no, ahead, you know, people forget that Whitey Herzog and Bing Devine, you know, two names that you hear um, as being, you know, baseball legends. We know we all know Whitey Herzog with Cardinals, but on the, then with the Royals, but, but people, a lot of people forget, you know, he was he was in the Mets front office and Bing Devine, you know, another guy with an incredible resume, 
these guys are Mets front office, but I'm sorry, Sam. Please continue. No, I was going to also say scouting director Joe McDonald. Can't forget him with this year. And, uh, and, and this is the way, of course, the only way we can finish the 1967 season with rookie Tom Seaver. He had uh, 16 wins, 13 losses, uh, 276 ERA. Uh, he had 251 innings pitched, and he had 170 strikeouts. And it'll be uh, nice to see. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, sneak a peek until we get closer to our 68th episode, uh, probably sometime next week, uh, to see what Tom Seaver does in 1968. I, of course, kind of uh, uh, forget about that, but we, of course, know that we have uh, Gil Hodges' talk to look forward to when it comes to 1968. And without further ado, we get to the final word of a Metsian podcast. We thank you all for listening out there. Uh, let's first go to Rich Sparago with his final word. My final word would be um, curious. I'm very curious to see how the Mets are going to approach the many, many things they have to do. You know, we talked about general manager. Yeah, they need one. When will they have one? Who will it be? Very curious. Free agency is here, guys. You know, you can start seeing these guys come off the board very quickly. How active will the Mets be? Will they do what they said? Will they shop in the gourmet aisle, as Sandy said? We, want, we don't know. How are they going to do it? How are they going to change this roster that, that's clearly flawed? I'm curious about all of it and can't wait to see it unfold. That is correct, Mike. How about you? What is your final word? Rich stole my thunder. I'll say hot stove. I'm looking forward to the <laughs> scuttlebutt of the alt season. I, I really am. Let it let it begin. Shame. And before my final word, let me give a shout out again to Laura Goldman. Uh, she was fascinating with her angle of the business side of things when it comes to baseball uh, and otherwise, of course. Just uh, uh, it's all intertwined, and we thank her for joining us tonight. Uh, my final word is anticipation, uh, going with kind of with, with what you guys are uh, talking about. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this all unfolds. I think we're going to find out some uh, information this week, and uh, I can't wait for it to get started. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that has been the 67th edition of the Metsian Podcast. We thank you for joining us again to Laura Goldman. Uh, thank you uh, to Rich and Mike, my compadres, and there's uh, only one way to end this. Let's go Mets. Thanks, everybody. Good night, guys. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Good night.